Welcome to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. I'm Joe Van Hoogen. It's been my honor to be the Bible teacher of this ministry for over 20 years. We've rejoiced to be able to come to you every weekday during that time. This is a program of the International Ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and its mission fellowship, the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. You can learn more about our work by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Today, we turn to Psalm 8 and consider one of the joyful psalms of David. Speaking on the psalms is a challenge. You want to gain practical insight from them, but you don't want to drag down the poetic passion of the psalm by pushing up our glasses on our noses and looking for some pragmatic principles and missing the sheer impulse of life in the text. So before we approach the psalms, we ask, God, help us to catch the spirit of your word. Well, when we come to these psalms, our challenge is to somehow understand them, and to understand them best, we need to understand them within their historical context, and yet at the same time, we don't always have with us what that historical context is. When individuals come to Psalm 8, they try to understand something of what's being expressed here, something of the historical point. Some individuals will say that this is a nature psalm, this is a royal song of praise. Others will say that this is a song that is an anthem to the glory of man. Ultimately, what all will say, almost every commentator will say, is that most certainly David had to have written this psalm when he was either a shepherd boy sitting under the stars at night, because we know he was singing songs then. You remember the young boy was brought into the palace of King Saul to sing to him, to soothe him in his tormented periods of time, or else the psalm was written at least at a time when David still had not lost sight of the memories of those youthful days. And so it's in retrospect maybe that they wrote these things. This is because when you look at the psalm, you'll notice that there is no note of the defeats and the difficulties and the opposition and even the moral compromise that David will bring into his own life. There's no sound of lament there's no note of longing or something that has not been fulfilled, of defeat. There's no sound of repentance. In this psalm, David is on the mountaintop of faith and praise. And so the conclusion is made. He wrote this when he was really young. When he was still in his idealistic days. That's when David wrote this song. And the question that we have to ask is, can we determine, can we really determine when David wrote this psalm. Jewish tradition says that this psalm was actually written by David following his defeat of Goliath, the Philistine giant. That it wasn't written simply because he was sitting out on the hillside and looking at the stars, but it was written at that point in time. Let's look at some clues here. If you take your Bible and you open it up and you look at these psalms, you'll see that there are various inscriptions before the different psalms that we're to read. And there are, the majority of the psalms have an inscription just before them, ours says, to the chief musician upon Gittith, some of you will say, to the tune of the winepress or something along those lines, a psalm of David. The psalm right after it says, to the chief musician on Muthlaban, a psalm of David. And so you'll see there's these various inscriptions here. By the way, by the time that these psalms were assembled, most individuals recognize that the psalms were finally assembled into the state that we have now somewhere during the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon or just after that. And they gathered together all these psalms and made a compendium of them that have been brought forward. And by the time that they gathered them together, 
and as they passed them on, they would have the psalm, one coming after the other, one after the other, and at the end of each psalm, you would, of course, find these various inscriptions, or before the next psalm, you'd find these inscriptions. And it was determined, not knowing exactly where they belonged, to put all of these inscriptions at the beginning of the next psalm. But there are some psalms that we also find in the Old Testament that are not written here, that were not to some extent handled as they were put together by the people who compiled them and then gave them to us, but are brought forward to us by the various prophets. One of them is in Isaiah, where Isaiah writes the Psalms of Hezekiah. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 9 through 20. This is just a little bit of notes you need to know to help you understand the psalm we're going to look at. It's going to make sense to you in just a second. In Isaiah chapter 38, verses 9 through 20, you have a psalm that Hezekiah wrote. By the way, Hezekiah was one of, and is noted by Isaiah as one of those who compiled or put together the psalms of David. And he wrote his own psalms as well. So he was one of the initial compilers of the psalms. His psalm goes in this way. It begins in verse 9 by saying, The writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered from his sickness. Now that sounds like the various inscriptions that you might find at the beginning of some of the psalms in the book of Psalms. But then you read through the psalm that goes on after that, and then at the end of the psalm, there's an additional subscription. There's an inscription, and then there's a subscription. And the subscription says, We will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life. And so there's a little bit of instruction that's given at the end of the psalm as well. Actually, Habakkuk has another one of these. The prophet Habakkuk writes, and there in Habakkuk chapter 1, you have a psalm of the prophet Habakkuk. It's a prayer. But prayers are psalms, and psalms are prayers. And it begins with this introduction, or this inscription. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. And then you have this song, the psalm that Habakkuk gives us. And then in verse 19, you have this subscription, this other note. To the chief musician upon stringed instruments. Now this is interesting. What it tells us is that the two that we have that are not compiled by those that were in Babylon, but two that are found, written by the various prophets, that the Psalms often began with a title at the beginning of them and a footnote at the end of them. And that's different from the way that your Psalms and the book of Psalms is organized for you. Here what you have is you have all of the inscriptions written at the very beginning of the next Psalm that you're going to be reading. Now, what that tells you is, if that's the order in which they take place, that it's possible that some of the things that are written at the beginning of the next psalm actually belong as a footnote to the psalm that came before it. Does that make sense? Do you understand that? And if you do it that way, it begins to help actually make sense because there are some inscriptions that are written that really don't seem to apply to the song that comes after it. And so oftentimes commentators have labored over what the significance of it is. and Well, Psalm chapter 9 is like this. In Psalm chapter 9, you have, it says here in Psalm chapter 9, to the chief musician upon Muthlaban, a psalm of David. Translators have translated the word Muthlaban. It means at the death of a son. That's what they've translated to mean. Now, that's kind of challenging for them because Psalm 9 doesn't seem at any way at all to indicate the death of a son. It doesn't seem to be the topic or the theme that's being discussed. So, they think, well, this must be something that David wrote when Absalom died, but we don't see it in Psalm 9 at all. And so, what they've written instead is, to be sung to the tune of a death of a son. Okay, maybe that's what it meant. It was of a death of a son. That's what Muthlaban must mean here. 
but it must be to be sung to the tune of death of the Son. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense as a note to Psalm chapter 9. Okay, well, there is another translation for the word Muthleben. It was offered to us by the ancient Jews. The ancient Jews who translated the Hebrew into the Aramaic put together what were called targums. And we have the various targums of the writings up of the ancient Psalms. And in Psalm chapter 9, when they came to the word Muthleben, they changed the length of one of the vowels and understood that it didn't mean the death of a son, but it meant on the death of the man who came in between the camps. In fact, this is the exact translation of the Targums. It is to praise relating to the death of the man who went out between the camps. Now, that is a direct reference to Goliath. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, you'll have the story of Goliath. There is the picture of the Philistine armies that are gathered on one mountain on one side. In between is a large valley. There's another mountain, and there the armies of Israel are established, and they are tented, and they're led by King Saul. And into that valley between the two camps, we're told that Goliath would go each day, and he would cry out to the soldiers in the Israelite camp to come out and fight with him. He would tell them that if you can defeat me, then we'll be your servants but if I defeat you and your hero and your champion, then you will be our slaves. And he was the man who went out between the camps. If you put this all together, first, that the inscriptions may not be applied to the psalm that's following it, but the psalm that came before it. And you recognize that it says, a song devoted to the praise, praise given at the death of the man who went out between the camps, which was a Goliath, then we can understand that Psalm 8 was written in response to the victory that David gained as a boy over Goliath. Now let's take that application, let's take that idea, and now let's look at Psalm 8. David was the youngest of eight sons. He had three older brothers. Those three older brothers had actually gone out to be in the army of Saul, and they were camped on that mountain, and each day they went out and listened to Goliath mocking mocking them and calling out for a champion to come and all of them quaked and none of them went to fight him. There was no champion to be found. David was still a boy. He was still tending to the sheep of his father. His father took David, the youngest of these sons, and he instructed David to gather together rations to leave his sheep with keepers to take rations to his brothers and at the same time to find out news from the army of Israel to bring back to him to let him know how they were faring. David arrives at the scene where the armies are gathered along this mountainside. He turns over his rations. You'll see this in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David leaves his rations with the person who cares for rations, and he rushes out to join his brothers on the front line. As he arrives to find his brothers on the front line, he is there to hear the boast of Goliath crying out this giant with his massive spear and his massive shield and armored all up and his massive sword at his side, crying out, fight me, and if you win, we'll be your servants. If I win, you'll be our slaves. And David, the boy David, is insulted. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 26. David spoke to those that were standing by him and said, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's actually quite humorous. 
He's an idealistic young lad, it's true, because he's not looking at the armies of the living God at this moment. They're all shaking and quaking in their boots. David is angry. His older brother, wiser than him, more understanding of the situation, is angry at David. And he understands that David has just come up here. He's just been glad to take this errand that he's been sent on by his father because he just wants to see the action taking place. He's just satisfying his curiosity. And he tells him, why don't you go back and tend your sheep? Now we know the rest of the story. No man steps from the ranks of the armies of Israel to fight the giant Goliath. David steps forward. Somehow he persuades. Obviously, the Spirit of God had to be leading Saul and expressing himself through David. But somehow he convinces Saul that he is adequate for the battle. He explains to Saul, and Saul protests. He sees, it's, you'll read in the text, Saul sees him as a boy, as a lad. His age is established. I imagine that he's a young teenager, or maybe in his mid-teens at best. I'm thinking if I vision him in my mind that his Adam's apple is a little bit too large for his body. He's not maturing. His feet are a little bit too large for his body. That his voice is kind of cracking. You know, he doesn't have that nice, sweet, melodic voice anymore. In past days, as a little boy, he had sung maybe before Saul. Now he's grown. Saul barely recognizes him. He's just a lad. David explains to him that God has delivered him and his sheep from a bear and from a lion that have come upon his father's sheep, and that if God can deliver him from those, that God can also deliver him from Goliath. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org.